This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Somehow this Zeppelin spirit gets sifted through Steph and Marlene and Joan and Lisa. And yet the four of us, when we are on the stage, we're us. Like, I'm sort of partially Jimmy, but I'm also partially Steph. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, it's lovely to see you again. And I am utterly intrigued by what I heard at the top of the show. Who was speaking and what was she talking about? We heard the voice of Steph Paines. She is the founder of Les Zeppelin, which is an all-female Led Zeppelin... Look, she hates the term tribute band, so I'm going to say experience. And as well as founding the band, she is its guitarist. So she's its Jimmy Page, if you will. Well, so I must know, are Les Zeppelin an LGBTQ group or is that just a clever punny name? It's totally unclear to me, uh, in part because they've had a bunch of membership change-ups mm. over the years. She, I think, is the only founding member who's still in the band. Uh, and that's a question that she declines to answer in interviews. Got it. Well, I am very excited to hear this interview. But first, I believe that you have an extra segment for Slate Plus members. What will they hear? Yes, it's one of my favorite Slate Plus segments that we've done in a while. We will hear about Steph Paines's real-life friendship with the real-life Jimmy Page and what it's like when that real-life Jimmy Page just shows up at one of your gigs sometime. Oh my God, that sounds amazing. And if I weren't already a member, I would definitely sign up for Slate Plus to hear that. Fortunately, it is incredibly easy to join. And as a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site. You will never hit the paywall. And you'll also get member-exclusive episodes and segments from Working, this show, and also from other Slate podcasts like The Culture Gab Fest and The Waves. To learn more about becoming a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Steph Haynes. Steph Paines, thank you so much for joining us today on Working. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So how would you describe what it is that you do? Magician? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) As opposed to musician. Because when it works, it's magic and quite extraordinary. Right. I think what I do is I bring a very revered, beloved bunch of compositions alive with a band and that we bring it to people so that they can revisit earlier times when they listen to this music or they can get exposure to this music that they've always heard about and experience it in a way that's live and exciting do you do you use the term, you know, tribute band in your marketing and, and stuff like that? Is that sort of the shorthand for what you do? Or is there a preferred nomenclature, as they say in the Big Lebowski? We hate the term tribute band. I thought you might. 
Because I didn't find it anywhere on your website. I was like, I bet Led Zeppelin does not like the term tribute band. The tribute band in my mind is a band that impersonates Hmm. another band. So, you know, like an Elvis impersonator (laughs) is, is the ultimate tribute. But what we do is not impersonate so much as... I guess reincarnate or mm. she incarnate, like like take she the incarnate. Essence. I love that. Yeah, take the essence of what we feel Led Zeppelin had to offer, and sort of run that through our own systems, our own sort of group dynamic, and then present that in in a way that you know I think is very Zeppelin esque, but yet is not trying to be them, you know, not trying to fool anyone into, oh, if you just squint a little and it looks all fuzzy, you'll really think it's Led Zeppelin on stage. Right. No one's going to think that. We're girls anyway. Well, that's what I was about to say is like, it's not like the option of a literal representation is open to the band in the same way because you're four women, right? Exactly. I mean, having said that, of course, Led Zeppelin were quite girly in their time. Yes. So they were gender-bending as well. And we're gender-bending from the opposite end. Mm-hmm. We're sort of guy-like, you know. We're, we're right. girls out there with our long hair, but we're sort of strutting around and poking our pelvises out at people. <laughs> you know, like, you know there's, it's definitely a swagger, you know. And the guys, if you look at early Led Zeppelin... I mean, you know, they're prancing around and and mincing and throwing their hair back. And Jimmy is like a a silfy sort of ballet dancer, you know. I mean, it's very interesting. You know, somewhere in between we meet Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and just blur the lines all together. Yeah. For our listeners who aren't, you know, familiar with the band's history, can you talk a little bit about the origin of the band and and how you decided to get, you know, a group of women together to do to channel let's say channel to channel led zeppelin i like that i like the channeling um i mean i could say that you know jimmy put a spell on me and i woke up one day and that was it i had to i was obsessed with led zeppelin but it was a little like that i mean i just i was in between gigs myself and um i had actually been playing with ronnie specter may she rest in peace i just wrote a piece about her as well but um And I was just hankering to play heavy music and get my guitar skills in order and maybe take them further. And I had been listening to a lot of Led Zeppelin. You know, they had reissued the masters of all their albums and I had that set and I was just absolutely addicted to it. And so I thought, you know, quite naively, oh, let's just get a bunch of girls together and we'll go down and play a bit of Zeppelin once a month and get our $50 from the, you know, bar we're playing in and go have a beer and that'll be that. Right. And, you know, what I realized (laughs) rather quickly is, one, where am I going to find girls? Because I thought, you know, the marketer in me thought it's much more interesting if it's girls. So that was a sort of given. But then I just thought, where am I going to find anyone that can play this music and forget about the pool of women was so much smaller to begin with. 
So I realized I must be crazy. This I'm not. But somehow, miraculously, I found these girls through word of mouth, one by one. And then we tried to play the music. And it's not like I'm saying we were not good musicians. It's just that for anybody, I don't care who you are, to sit down and try to be Led Zeppelin. Well, good luck. That's right. all I'm saying. <laughs> well, no, this is, this is so great because this is <laughs> such a great creative challenge, right? Because the songs, right. they're not just the chords. They're not just the words. There's the ineffable, inimitable style, right? The soul of, of the band. So how do you go about figuring out what that is on like a technical level as a musician and how to recreate it? Well, that's just it. Yeah. Because it's not really, the, the soul of the band does not lie in the technical level of the band. Mm. The essence of it is something else. It's that magical thing that happens when they play together. And it's bigger than the sum of its parts, and it's bigger than the little guitar lines and the massive drum parts. It is an alchemy. And is that just about spending time together or are there specific exercises? Like, I come from a theater background, and actually a lot of what you're talking about kind of rhymes with that experience, right? Because uh-huh. the text is fixed. It might have been written hundreds of years ago. You know, you've got to create an ensemble that can channel its soul and listen to each other and interplay. But like, if you go to acting school, like there's exercises you do to learn how to do that, I guess. Like for you and the band, was it just spending time together? Was there specific techniques you developed to kind of figure out how to maximize the chemistry between the players? Or It happens in a rehearsal, but a lot of it also happens live like in other words it's it's a it's a kind of organic thing and usually it can only happen live really for a band like ours i mean we have gone and we've made records and some tracks are more magical than others but the thing that happens live when you're playing and you're presenting this music and you're getting into it you just kind of have to do it Mm -hmm. a lot with the awareness that the key thing is to play together And to go to the middle of the stage and to huddle together and to throw riffs back and forth and to listen, you know, to really listen and also to let it go. It's like if you just read the words, you know, you're just reading the words of the play and you're copying exactly the way the actor before you read the words of the play. Well, Maybe you'll be as good as the actor before you with any luck, but you're you're not necessarily going to add anything to it. Right. You're not going to make it come alive, most likely. To make it come alive, you, Isaac, have to come across and just bring something, you know? Mm-hmm. Somehow this Zeppelin spirit gets sifted through Steph and Marlene and Joan and Lisa And yet, the four of us, when we are on the stage, we're us. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not really, I'm sort of partially Jimmy, but I'm also partially Steph. Mm -hmm. I'm never going to sound exactly like Jimmy. I've already accepted that. (laughs) And it's okay. Did you try, though? Is there a period of time where you're like, I have to get a Dan Electro 3021 and I have to watch videos of him strumming so I can strum exactly like him or, you know, whatever it is? Absolutely, yes. Was that and sort I, of the I, early phase of doing the, the band? Yes, yes, definitely. And and I have all those guitars, and I work very hard to match the sound. 
because the sound is very important. Like if you can't play your Les Paul through it like a Marshall 900. Right. Just to give you, you know, because it's going to sound like ACDC. Right. Not like Led Zeppelin because that fuzzy sound is going to be there and it's wrong. Mm hmm. So those things are technical. Those are really technical. You got to, I think you got to get that right. But that can only take you so far. You then have to play the guitar in a way that is very like how he played. And that takes studying. Yeah, I was about to ask, what was that research process like? Are you... Uh, you know, like, like I have friends who are like huge Grateful Dead fans, right? Who are guitarists. And so they'll watch YouTube tutorials on how to solo like Jerry or whatever, you know? Uh, but when you're starting the band in 2004, I don't even remember if YouTube existed then. So what was your research process like? Are you watching videos of him live or reading interviews to figure out like, what was it? Actually, you're right. So in when I started the band in 2004, basically, there was nothing like that. And there was very little live Led Zeppelin. I mean, basically all you had was the song Remains the Same. Right. So if you go back <laughs> and you see all these quote-unquote tribute bands doing Led Zeppelin early on, for you know, before that time period and even after, everyone's dressed like the song Remains the Same. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, right? I never thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. If they're dressed, right. It's, it, everyone is recreating the look and feel of this one specific sliver exactly. of the band's history. Go look at these tribute bands. You know, you've got Robert with his jeans and his, you know, Jimmy in that black suit. I mean, it's this because that's all you had, right? And what happened, luckily, and this is part of the magic, I believe that they did this specifically for me. <laughs> <laughs> is that, you know, How the West Was Won, the Led Zeppelin DVD came out in 2003. Mm. Now that DVD had a bunch more stuff on it. It had the Earl's Court. It had Royal Albert Hall. It had, you know, Long Beach. It, I mean, it had a bunch of videos, performances that no one ever seen. And lo and behold, we had all this other stuff to watch. So I was able to watch Jimmy play a lot more than people before me would have been able to do. And I personally learn a lot by watching a guitar player. I can learn a lot hmm. by doing that. Just seeing the physicality of how somebody plays. Right, like how are, how are their fingers moving on the neck or what's the strumming pattern and how do they affect it? Or Yep, exactly. Body movement. You cannot play like Jimi Hendrix unless you watch how he moves. Mm -hmm. And you you do with your guitar what he did. Yeah. I'm telling you, because I studied him too. And I couldn't sound like him until I was standing one day. I, I spent like four days up in my parents' house in the Berkshires, locked myself in and was watching Rainbow Bridge or other things like that, standing in the middle of the room with a Strat going like, why can't I get this? I got the notes, but why is it not sounding? And I'm watching Jimmy, you know, flail the guitar against his hip and move with it and strumming it. So I just started imitating him and playing. And suddenly it was like, that's it. Mm. It's just, there it was just this, this little meter that clicked over just enough to give me that, Jimi Hendrixy 
sound that I was after. And I, it's the same. You, you know, you need to like really study a guitar player's movements, stuff like that, how they play together. But then, you know, you have to listen and listen and listen and then just do it and do it and figure out why you're not sounding like it. And it's so intense. Mm. The best education for that, actually, and this is way after the band started, in 2009, 2010, we recreated Led Zeppelin One in the studio. We re-recorded the whole album which was nuts. <laughs> but we did it in a studio, in an analog studio. Mm-hmm. We did it with the same amplifiers. Uh, it was like a science project. <laughs> we had the Supros. We had, and the guy that was recording us and producing it was a friend of Jimmy Page's. So we were actually calling Jimmy. What did oh. you use on this? And he, really? would, tell, wow. he would tell us. So we had, you know, he was partial to the experiment. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you know, I use the, you know, the uh, harmony, the, you know, 200 or whatever. Well, which one? The one with this bridge or that? And he would tell us. And this guy happened to have it because he was a vintage guitar dealer. So he'd go into the shelves and pull the same guitar out. I mean, so it was nuts. So we had the the luxury of matching all those guitar sounds, all those drum sounds, all those bit. Okay, but that was only step one. Then we recorded it live together, the basic tracks, because that's the only way to do it. You have to do it live because there's no way you're going to get the energy mm-hmm. of that record unless you do that. And then there were the solos and everything else. Were you recreating the solos note for note or were you doing your own improvisations in those moments? Both. So you you had to make a judgment call, like right. for something like a communication breakdown. Most of the solo is the same, okay? Because it's this beautiful, neat little solo, right? But for other songs, it was completely improvised. So how many more times or something like that, where where really it was right to take it out. Mm -hmm. It would have been sort of stilted not to. But, for example, with something like Communication Breakdown, there's just that basic riff, which everyone plays, which sounds easy. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So we recorded it. And we're listening back to it and we're looking at each other like there's something wrong. The sound is right. The riff is right. The notes are right. What is it? What is it? And the more we listen, the more we listen, we realize that there was an upstroke, not a downstroke. So in other words, he was going da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da and then upstroke da-da-da. Okay? So the... You know, there were two upstrokes instead of down. And unless you do that, it's not going to sound right. Okay, so there's like, you know, this crazy studying of this this 
minutia, mm. but it makes a difference in the end. So that's how you do it in a, in a completely obsessive, compulsive way. No, I mean, this really sounds like what, you know, people who are super into Shakespearean performance and that's how they specialize, you know, what they do, they're going to break down the the language and the rhythm of the language. There's a whole movement to pronounce Shakespeare's words the way they were pronounced in the late 16th early 17th century, you know, people will go and get uh, specifically deer leather gloves because the gloves of the costumes <laughs> back then would be deer leather. So so I totally get it. But, you know, that's still creative, though. I guess I'd, I'd ask you, like, what to you was the most creative part of that? Because you're still, like, interpreting in the midst of that, right? So what, what for you felt the most creative part of that process of recreating that album? Well, it was creative to dig really so deep into a piece of music that you become this incredible expert in a piece of music. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere within that, you find where you need to bring yourself to that. So once you figured out how to get the sounds and, and, and the feel and everything, then you really need to go in and perform it. Right. And the performance of it and, and the, the spirit of that performance and the music is something that's just you, you know, it, that, that's the individual part. If I go in and play the hell out of um, Whole Lot of Love or, or Since I've Been Loving You or some like heavy blues song, if I can go in with all of that framework, all of that studying, where I know how to sound like Jimmy, where I know how to rip into my guitar in a certain way that is so on the edge, and then I go at it and I completely explode into it, I'm really being Steph. I'm not being Jimmy. Mm -hmm. But just within this framework. Right. It, yeah. It's within a context but then the ultimate sort of musicianship is really who I am mm -hmm. and whether I can reach that level of bringing something exciting and powerful to it. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Steph Paines. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us the guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Steph Paines. I have to ask, after you've done that really granular dive into everything from which direction the pick's going in, which amp it's plugged <laughs> into, how is he doing this, you know, little filigree in the song or whatever. Um, by the end of that, are you like, all right, I just need to not listen <laughs> to this song again for like three weeks? Or do you find yourself like like the obsession never ends and you're more deeply in love with it than ever before? Wow. Uh, I think it depends on the song. But then there's you forgot like going out and finding the right clothes. Then you can just go do that. <laughs> right, 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 right. Totally. totally. Wait a minute. 
How am I going to wear my hair? No. Um, How am I going to get the violin bow at the exact right oh, angle? Oh, the, the violin bow. That's an interesting point because the violin bow solo, which I do, is never what Jimmy does. Mm. That to me is like the place where I just, it's just going to be me. Right. So I take that bow solo and I'm like, okay, I'm now Steph. I'm doing what I want. Your band is famously a force to be reckoned with live. Can you talk a bit about developing kind of your live show? And because that is a different creative process than recreating the songs in the studio, you know, figuring out how to be great live. You know, what is that like for you all? Well, first of all, to play this music for an hour and a half or whatever and go through these sort of pyrotechnics of it, if you will. Most people have to just stare at their fingers and make sure they're getting it all right or focus so hard like you're in an exam, you know? <laughs> you're like, yeah. I have to remember everything and I have to make sure that I don't, you know, there are so many moving parts. And it's physically tiring, I, you know, especially Exhausting. for your drummer, right? I can't imagine it, what it's like to, you know, drum like John Bonham for an hour and a half. It's a gymnastic, physical, yeah. Olympian event. I mean, it's exhausting. But I think that once you get past that, then you, the job you have is to bring that without thinking about what you're playing. And that takes a couple of years, okay, mm. to get to that point <laughs> where yeah. I don't look at my fingers on the guitar anymore. I stopped doing that about 15 years ago. I just look at the audience. I look at the other band members. I strut across the stage. I'm not, I'm not looking at my guitar at all. That took a long time. It also took a couple of years to get the guitar lower and lower below my pelvis <laughs> so that it could be the proper instrument of, you know, sexual force that it right. needs to be. And that's part of it. I mean, it's a very sexual performance. Mm -hmm. But that's what Led Zeppelin is. You take that element out and it's not that anymore. And another challenge on top of that, because you've talked about how important the kind of ensemble dynamic, the group dynamic is, is that you've changed band members a few times over the years. And so yeah. how does integrating a new member into an already existing kind of framework, you know, how do you tackle that? It's a process. Usually, you know, there was one time when the entire band changed and that was its own little nightmare in and of itself. But more frequently, it's like the singer changes or one person changes at a time, which is less problematic. But the singer in particular, I think, I think it's a whole thing. You know, it trying to be Robert Plant in whatever the essence of a Robert Plant is, is no easy feat. Mm -hmm. it, it's just there are so many things he's sexual he's got four octave range he's he's girly but he's masculine he's this he's that you know there's just so many things to what he does so you have to really get into that mm -hmm. and it's it definitely you know you have to get together as a band and and do it and I find myself egging everyone else on so mm -hmm. that's partially how you do it I'll strut around and I'll 
get myself in the face of the bass player, you know, or the singer mm-hmm. and basically attack them, you know, just <laughs> just sexualize them. And it works. It works, you know, and and, and the, before you know it, the whole band is turned on and everyone's doing it. And mm-hmm. then everyone is, and you know, and that's kind of what makes it happen. I mean, it, it strikes me that, you know, a lot of the, you know, for the person in the Robert Plant role is Marlene Angelitis, that they also have to have a very particular chemistry with you, right? Because, you know, you think of Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, you know? Yes. And so... I'm just, you know, interested in how you kind of develop that because Marlene's not the first lead singer of the band, you know, in the audition process, are you trying to figure out like, Hey, am I going to have good chemistry with this person? Do you, I don't know, go out to lunch to talk or (laughs) whatever it is to, you know, you know, figure out like, what is that dynamic going to be? And are we going to be able to summon some channel, some version of what Paige and Plant do? Oh, yeah. You know, I think the Jimmy Robert thing is definitely a a tension and a playfulness and a uh, a dance. How about that? It's like it's like a a sexy dance. I will say that um, as women, we have a little bit freer reign because we can be very free with each other. You know, I think women can be more playful with each other sexually on stage than men can. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone, you know, maybe these days it's a little different, you know, in the last couple of years than it has been. But if two guys get together and start, you know, rubbing up against each other, I don't think that's going to go over the same way. Mm -hmm. Robert and Jimmy never quite did that. They used to hang on each other a little bit. And communicate, but Marlene and I will like, we'll hang all over each other. I mean, you know, there are theremin solos where I'll basically mount her on the stage. You know, <laughs> I can do that, and it's fun. And she plays along, and we have you know groaning sex sessions on stage where it's just fun, right? Uh, little overboard, and the audience loves it, and we're having a great time. You know, it's just it's playful. Mm-hmm. But the music is very sexual, so it's very natural. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole thing is like that. You can't so have a chaste Led Zeppelin show. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I suppose you can, but it's not very interesting. Right. I think uh, most of these tribute bands that you see, that's what they do. It's mm. chaste and, and sort of robotic. Are you changing up the set list a lot from night to night or is it the same, you know, do you rehearse a a sort of fixed set that you then take out on the road? It depends. You know, like, for example, we we take physical graffiti out on the road. We have that as a show. And that's really fun. And we love that album because it's so diverse. But yes, we'll change up the set all the time. How do you think about, I've always wondered, you're our first, you know, like rock act that I've, I've interviewed in a while, uh, that does a lot of, of, of live performance. So how do you figure out a set list? What makes for a good set list for people who are maybe starting bands right now, listening to the show? What tips can you offer them for the. Okay. Well, we'll argue about this a lot, even like, you know, with our sound guy, we're always arguing. We have a legendary sound guy who has been with us for, oh my God, I don't know how long. 12, 13 years. His name is Night Bob, and he's a legend. But he has an idea of what a great set list is, for example. He thinks you should basically hit them over the head with the hits. Like, you need to build it. And then once you get to that peak, you should peak out, you know, somewhere 
two thirds in and then pummel them all the way out so that there's nothing, you know, they don't, you don't give them a minute to just sort of breathe and go to the bathroom as it were, you know? So, but yet, you know, you might argue, well, no, there are lots of mountains and valleys where, you know, Led Zeppelin, for example, they'd play for three hours and then they'd have a half hour acoustic set in there, which is arguably when everyone goes to the bathroom, you know, (laughs) but then some people love it. So, I think for us, it depends. You know, we like to, when we're playing the same venue, we like to bring a different set of songs because a lot of the same people will come. So mm-hmm. we don't want to just give them the same thing. And and we know that certain places, for example, Detroit, where they're completely into rock and Zeppelin and stuff, we can throw obscure stuff at them and they'll love it. Whereas if you're going to kind of a theater, you may not have been there. People may not have seen you before. They don't know who you are. They want to hear Led Zeppelin. You know, you have to play Whole Lot of Love and Black Dog and Rock and Roll and and The Ocean and Heartbreaker. You know, you just have to give them a lot of that stuff or they're going to be lost. You know, <laughs> so like, what was, you know, they're, they're, right. you have to kind of, you know, tease them in. So I think, you know, we just sort of massage it. And then, of course, it's what we want to play, too. Right, right, right. If we're learning something new, we want to play it, you know. So um, in, I think it was 2019, you released the EP Isle of Skyros, which Mm -hmm. seemed to sort of almost announce like a slightly different direction with the band because you had original string arrangements on songs that did not have strings on them on their original albums, like Immigrant Song or Achilles' Last Stand. Who would put strings on that, right? It's crazy. Exactly. Can you talk a bit about kind of, you know, I guess opening up those songs and deciding to add something new into them? And yeah, because it's not a radical shift in what the band does, but it's a bit of a shift. You know, how did you come about doing that? One of the promoters came up with the idea of doing a string concert and we loved it. We jumped at it and it wasn't like with an orchestra, which has been done, but which didn't really interest us. First of all, it's a whole production, but we didn't want to tame down the music Mm -hmm. so that it was, you know, happy, fluffy Led Zeppelin with an entire orchestra. What we wanted to do was increase the ferocity and the dynamics and, you know, the depth of the music. So we decided let's have a, you know, a smaller a, a quartet or something. So so we had these unusual arrangements. And originally the island of Skiros was supposed to be just a marketing tool for the string show. But, of course, you can't go in the studio and take it lightly. So it became this whole album. <laughs> We actually spent time and money on to create something as good as we could. Did that affect kind of, not that you're touring with a string quartet now or anything, but did that affect kind of your approach to the music afterwards or or the direction the band has taken? I mean, after your forced hiatus with the pandemic and everything, you know, did, did, have you felt like a sort of change in how you think about or approach the song since doing that? Well, we would like to get back to doing string concerts. We actually were supposed to be in Australia in a, uh, a week from today, but that just got postponed till July because of the floods in Sydney. We were going to do a whole tour of Australia. So we have a promoter there who basically is putting on the string shows. So we're going to do a whole orchestrated 
tour in Australia. And he's actually going to add to the strings, not just a quartet, but maybe, you know, eight to 10, 12 people on stage with some horns and everything. So, yeah, I, I think that it's something we definitely will get into doing. And, you know, the, we're, we're basically, I think we're playing lots of different things. Like we love to do physical graffiti. We'd love to do the string shows. So there are different types of presentations of the music. And mm-hmm. then sometimes just a flat out rock and roll bash, you know. Right. I think what happened since the pandemic, it was a big sort of come to Jesus moment of, do we even want to do this anymore? Mm. Can we even do this anymore? Is there going to be live music? And if there is, will there be room for us, you mm-hmm. know? And happily, I think the answer to all those questions was yes. So uh, we're just happy to to play our guts out, our hearts out. I think if anything's changed, what's changed is the ferocity of what we're absolutely ferocious now on stage, which is right. great. Well, Steph Paines, thank you so much for joining us. I'm working to talk about your process. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Isaac, that was a full-on amazing interview. I haven't seen live brought music in years, but I want to go see Led Zeppelin immediately, if not sooner. I also have to tell you that as soon as I finished listening, I went to YouTube and I queued up some classic Led Zepp. Oh, I did the same thing. Like as soon as that interview was over, I was like, all right, we're, we're digging in now. Yeah, exactly. You can't resist. And I have to say, I was really quite moved by Steph's explanation of Les Zeppelin's mission, which is allowing people to see Led Zeppelin's music performed live, which other than a few memorable reunion concerts from the surviving members, hasn't been possible since 1980. So Les Zeppelin get to rock out as musicians, but they also get to share this music in a way that isn't available from the actual band anymore. That really is kind of magical. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have someone from a band like Led Zeppelin on the show, and and actually Cameron and I were sort of looking for the right person, and I think he was the one who came up with Steph Payne's, and it just seemed like such a great idea, is I wanted to find out how they see their work and what is that work's creative mission. Because I just knew it couldn't be as simple as like, hey, it's cool to live the fantasy of being in Led Zeppelin, because that's not going to sustain you over the years of a career, and I think your work's going to be less interesting as a result. And I I think that Steph and the band have figured out something that is really meaningful to do with that work. Yeah. And not to go too far down the philosophical rabbit hole, but while I accept completely that Led Zeppelin is not copying or reproducing how Led Zeppelin looked and how they behaved in concert, I'm also aware that they're kind of turning back the clock. Like they're serving 1970s Led Zeppelin, not 2007 Led Zeppelin. Although, honestly, to me, the band looked and sounded better in 2007. Uh, Some people do get more attractive as they get older, and I think that's true of both Robert Plant and Jimmy Page, but that's by the by. Um, Anyway, I hope philosophers are aware of this wizardry. 
Well, one of the problems here is that John Bonham, Led mm-hmm. Zeppelin's legendary drummer and probably the best British rock drummer of that generation, died in 1980, uh, famously asphyxiating on his own uh, vomit after a, a, yes. a day-long drinking binge. And the group disbanded rather than try to replace him. And in the intervening years, people's vocal cords age and change. So Robert Plant does not sound today like he did in the 70s. It is impossible to fully recreate the Led Zeppelin sound of the 70s. And what's great about Led Zeppelin's all-female lineup is to some extent that's acknowledged formally. You know, like they're giving you that experience, but it isn't an exact sound-for-sound recreation because... Led Zeppelin themselves can't do that on their reunion tour. (laughs) You know, that is not actually possible. So if you want to get philosophical about it, Led Zeppelin touring in 2007 is as much, if not more of a quote unquote tribute band than Led Zeppelin today. And so there's a way that, you know, that's going to get you closer to a specific kind of the experience because they've studied that live footage because they're trying to recreate what they can of, of what that was like. I have to say that I was glad that Steph kind of brought up the sexual part of the performance. Well, let me say as a male interviewer, I wasn't going to bring that up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that would yes. be a little like, let's talk about the sexual part. Like that was yeah. just never going to happen. Yeah, quite right. So I, but I was still, I was glad because part of the time traveling dimensions of the band is taking us back to a time when sexual mores were different. What performers did on stage was different. There's something almost disturbing about the level of raw sexuality that was on display in those 1970s Led Zeppelin concerts. I I almost like I felt weird watching it. Um, (laughs) I don't know if we'll ever have another episode of Working either in which someone utters the words, I mount her on the stage in the theremin solo. Like that's quite a combination of, of words. And I thought your comparison to accurate Shakespearean performance nerds was very apt. And obviously, all of that is stuff that has to be negotiated in the audition process. It's really tricky. Totally. And I also want to say, if there's any creative types out there who need an assignment, please create something where you can say the line, I mount her on the stage in the theremin solo in an interview on uh, working and pitch yeah. it to us. And we'll try to yeah. we'll try to get you on the show. But no, seriously. Rock music is sexual. I mean, there are bands that play against that or don't engage with it, really. Like, it's hard to imagine John Flansburg mounting John Linnell during a They Might Be Giants accordion solo or something. But when we are talking about R-A-W-K rock music, sex is a big part of it. But as in theater or any other kind of performance, you have to make sure that your colleagues because they are colleagues. It's a yes. job. It's a workplace. Yeah. And you have to make sure that they're comfortable with whatever it is you're doing. Famously, Tina Turner was not super comfortable with a lot of the extremely dirty things she had to do with the microphone during her time as part of Ike and Tina Turner. Um, and she's not the only one. So, you know, you it is a thing that has to be negotiated or that you know you have a coworker who's going to do that. Um, and also that you can discuss it with the coworkers in a way that isn't itself harassment, of course. Yeah, totally. I loved the discussion of the intense study that went into Led Zeppelin's recording of Led Zeppelin 1. There are so many occasions when creative people engage in like really deep, deep research and contemplation. And it almost feels a shame that you can't get like a PhD in Led Zeppelin 1 or, you know, I don't know, the history of Russian theatrical technique, perhaps. Well, you um, can get a PhD in that. 
Okay. Okay. Good. Good to know. Um, Isaac, have you ever found a use for absolute rabbit hole mastery of obscure minutiae, sort of equivalent of whether riffs involve downstrokes or upstrokes? Well, I used to be extremely good at pub trivia. Uh, that you know, so there's that. But on a more practical level. I think that it's hard to tell what's going to happen with all that knowledge. You know, all those facts, all those concepts, all those ideas you pick up over time. Yeah. What I like to think about is that it's like it's lying dormant in your subconscious and it's just waiting to be jolted awake by some new thing. And that new thing's going to come along and it's going to connect with that thing and that's going to create inspiration. I'll give you a really silly example. I love the Larry Sanders show. I have watched the Larry Sanders show all the way through probably three or four times. And among the other things that show is, is it's a brilliant time capsule of who was famous for what and what was in the discourse in the 1990s. And so when discussions of stuff in our pop culture today come up, sometimes my brain is like, wait, they talked about that on the Larry Sanders show. So that was also a thing in the 1990s. Why don't you go look up what the New York Times had to say about it then? And you'll discover some forgotten connection or story that way. That's crazy. Hey now. Um Hey now. I <laughs> I also enjoyed your conversation around setless philosophy. Where do you come down Isaac? Should it be a massive build with no release or build 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 and then 20 minutes of acoustic twiddling? What's your ideal setless scenario? I'm so glad you asked me this, June, because it's something I think about a lot, but it does depend <laughs> on the band. And let me tell you, there are bands whose set list philosophies I know very well because I have lots of live recordings of them or I nerd out about these things with friends. And it's different from a mixtape, uh, or as the kids call them today, playlists, oh. where you, you, know, you want to start off with a banger and then you get an even bigger banger and then you do a slow <laughs> third one. That's more sincere, right? Uh, so like Yola Tango, my favorite band, they have a very particular way of constructing their sets around peaks and valleys. And then the final run of five songs or so is usually building ever larger and larger peaks. And it culminates in a last song that is one of about eight very loud, long, distorted guitar jams like uh, the story of Yola Tango or I Heard You Looking, things like that. If we had our colleague Seth Maxson on, on here, though, you know, he and I could geek out about how Trey Anastasio constructs the set list for Fish shows, which is like a very clear art, etc. So it really depends on the band. I, I bet you're to. you're a fan of acoustic noodling, right? You're just you just want oh. all acoustic noodling all the time. All acoustic noodling all the time and I'm way back home while that's happening because yeah, I yeah, ain't exactly. sitting there for that. I do think you shouldn't do more than two slow songs in a row because then the audience just goes and gets a beer. Yeah, totally. I mean which you know if you get a share of that, fine. Noodle all you like, but they never do. So so no. Um I was super interested to hear about Les Zeppelin's string arrangement shows because I am one of those very weird people who actually likes it when strings show up in rock performances or actually not just rock. One of my very favorite albums in this world is the one the great flamenco artist Camarón de la Isla made with the, let me change my pronunciation technique, Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. And I'm sure <laughs> there are people who think that's complete heresy, but that version of Soy Gitano is one of my desert island discs. It might even be the one that the only one that I'm left with. Soy 
So, Isaac, where do you stand on orchestras or string sections playing with musicians from other genres? I love it under certain circumstances. It really <laughs> depends on the arrangements and it really depends on how many musicians we're talking about. Yeah. You know, I think there's a higher level of success if it's like a string quartet or a small horn section and they're joining them on stage. I remember I saw at Central Park Summer Stage many, many moons ago, I saw uh, Bell and Sebastian touring right before Dear Catastrophe Waitress came out and they had a string quartet on stage with them. When I saw Janelle Monet at the Apollo, she had a string trio and a horn section that were jobbed in for that show. And, you know, that's wonderful. I, I love that stuff. I'd much rather that than tons of synthesizers and backing tracks. But I do feel like when an orchestra specifically gets involved, the arrangements very quickly tend to get very cliched and uninteresting, as I think, frankly, maybe you see on the Led Zeppelin official orchestral album. Um, Part of what makes the Les Zeppelin approach work is that they collaborated with actual composers to come up with interesting arrangements. And those folks were going to do really wild stuff. I got to check that out. So one final question, if you were putting together a tribute band, who would you want to channel? Oh uh, yeah. And there's no question about it. Talking heads. I mean, there already is one, though, so who knows? But I love Talking Heads. They're one of my favorite bands. They're very formative. And I think I do a pretty mean David Byrne impression. So here. Hello. I have a tape I want to play you. Right? That's pretty good. It's the beginning of Uh, Stop Making Sense. That's all right, isn't it? uh, Yeah. How, How good am I at pretending I recognize that? Oh, yeah, never mind. Sounds great. You know, there's going to be six of our listeners who will get a little thrill out. <laughs> Hi. I got a tape I want to play. And the three who love Soy Gitano will be, will be applauding me right now. <laughs> listeners, we hope that you've enjoyed this show. If you have, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you will never miss an episode. And just one more reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, you'll get extra segments on shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you will never, ever hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Steph Paynes for being our guest this week. And extra thanks to our producer, Cameron Drews, who is like the John Bonham of producers, <laughs> minus the substance abuse issues. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with rural librarian Jessamine West. Until then, get back to work. <laughs> is that David Byrne? I really don't know. Yeah, yeah, that was. Hey there, Slate Plus. Isaac Butler here. Thank you so much, as always, for uh, everything you do to support the work that we do right here on Working. This is one of my favorite Slate Plus segments we've done yet, so I hope you enjoy it. You know, I read this story somewhere in one of your interviews, uh, thanks to our lovely researcher, Kevin Bendis, and I wanted to hear you tell it. Uh, You actually met Jimmy Page, and he came to one of your shows, right? Yes. Uh, uh, Unexpectedly, maybe. I I think you didn't know he was going to be there. Could you just tell our listeners the story of having Jimmy Page actually show up at one of your gigs and what that was like for you? Yeah. So that, hands down, was the most frightening gig I've ever played in my life. (laughs) So it wasn't exactly unknown. So I I had met Jimmy a couple of months before at the... um, the premiere of Celebration Day, which was the film of their concert at the O2 in 2007. And that whole meeting 
actually was a story in itself. But Jimmy and I, it was just like love at first sight. You know, he knew who I was, which was amazing. Because if there's anything that's going on with Led Zeppelin anywhere in the universe, Jimmy will know about it. Mm-hmm. So he was a fan of the band already. And he'd heard, you know, heard all the albums. I mean, it was just an amazing thing. So he had, you know, we were talking and uh, he came around the room again. And uh, one funny thing I will say about that initial meeting is when someone introduced us, he looked at me and was like, oh, blah, blah, blah. We hugged and stuff. And I turned to him and I said, Jimmy, I just want to tell you, it's really hard being you. And he just like, because it is, I know, right? I'm like, yes, it is. And we just, he goes, yeah, it's hard. And we just had this hilarious moment where it was this, yeah, it's hard to be you. I know. So anyway, so we uh, talked and I told Jimmy that we'd come to England. And he goes, oh, yeah, I, I would love, I've tried to come see you last time. I'd love to come see the band. So I organized, uh, right on cue, I organized a tour of England and brought the band over and we actually had played at the Isle of Wight the night before and then we were going to play in London and I had notified Jimmy's office over and over. I hadn't actually heard from Jimmy so I didn't know if he was going to be in town. His office said, we think he's in town and they were forwarding the messages and I was leaving a way to get in touch with me and all this stuff. So we had just played the Isle of Wight which was crazy enough to begin with. And we were on our way to England, uh, in London, the next day. And we'd taken the boat. We were exhausted. We were driving up to this place called The Garage in Islington. And we're in the van. And I look at my little flip phone. And this message comes up. And it says, love Jimmy, XOXO. So I'm reading through this message. Hey, how are you? How's it going? Blah, blah, blah. I'd like to come see you. I'm in the studio. You know. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I'm trying to text back. You know how you have to press ABC and then yeah, you got to yeah. move and then you got to go to the, oh, my. it's horrible, right? So I'm like poking at this phone and the phone rings. So I answer the phone. It's like, hello, is this Steph? You know, yes. Oh, it's Jimmy Page, right? So, you know, fantasy number one. Jimmy Page is calling me up, okay? So this is great, right? So he's just lovely, right? We already have had lovely conversations. And we, how are you? How's it going? How's it, what was the Isle of Wight? Blah, 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 blah. And we're having this conversation. He goes, well, I'm in the studio late, but I'm going to try to come. Yeah, I think I should get out. What time are you on? He goes, well, could you put me on the list plus one? <laughs> so <laughs> we used a fake name and we put him on the list. So we weren't sure that he was going to come, completely sure, but we had a good idea that he was going to try. So this was the moment when, you know, we were about to go on stage and I realized I had two choices. I could either freak out completely and not be able to play, or I could just be, well, I always play as if Jimmy's in the audience anyway. So if he's there, what difference does it make? And I just said, let's go out there and just play, like, give it everything we've got, you know, just really. And so we went out and we ripped. We were just played as if our lives depended on it. And apparently Jimmy walked in at some point about a half hour in during my bow solo. Okay, 
So the girls were on stage. I'm in the bow solo. And they all knew he had come in. He was at the back of the hall. And they were like, don't tell Steph. Don't tell Steph. <laughs> so at some point, you know, of all things to walk in on, the bow solo, right? It's crazy. At some point, I didn't know he was in the audience, but I'm. we're still, we're going through this rest of the set. I right. look back and I see this shock of white hair at the back. And it was at that point that I realized he was there. But it was already like, you know, we're already well into it. So we were just playing our balls off, you know. And at the end of the show, you know, the crowd was going nuts. Thank God. It was a good gig. They went nuts. At the end, um, Jimmy and his friend just beelined to the stage door, at which point nobody else was let in. And he came in. And he was, I was gone. You have to, you have to understand. I had given, I, I was completely spent. I don't think I was present after that. My, I had just gone to Mars somewhere where I was sitting by myself on Mars, okay? But Jimmy came in and he, he just loved it. He was like, this is how it should be done. This is the way this music should be done. He was so excited. Wow. Because he wasn't expecting to see this passionate, completely balls out, you know, like we weren't playing it note for note. We weren't just imitating them. We were just in the rock and roll, just orgasm, right? And Mm -hmm. he just thought, that's it. That's, you get it. That's exactly right. That's what it should be. And at the the very end of the night, it was just him and me in the club. He didn't even leave. And at one point, you know, we had to be cleared out of the club. He turns to me and he goes, you know, because it was it was like it was so sexual, like as if he'd never realized it before. And I I was like, well, uh, 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 yeah, I mean, yeah, I was sort of stunned. Like it's it is sexual. What do you think? You know, but it was so interesting because I guess he'd never watched himself. You know, he never Mm -hmm. watched Led Zeppelin. But right. we, we were bringing this so super sexual charged performance that he was just sort of stunned by it. It was fantastically interesting. Um, but it was it was an amazing, amazing moment. It was almost like, well, what do we do now? It was almost like nowhere to go from there. Get to get to the next gig, I guess. I guess that's what we yeah. did. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much again for uh, coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. All right, that's it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time right here on Working. 